Preparation. Preparation matters. And it was on Saturday morning, June 17, 2006, that I found myself on the water's edge of this lake in Pleasanton. And I was suited up and geared up with a bunch of other people ready, waiting for the foghorn to sound off because we were waiting for us, for, for the point for us to launch into my first and only, by the way, triathlon. And as we were sitting there at the water's edge, waiting for, for everything to begin, I started to notice and I started to look around me. People my age, we were going in waves of heat according to age groups, and I was noticing that everyone else around me looked pretty calm. And if they were nervous, they, they weren't showing it. I, on the other hand, was having an increasing sense of nervousness because as I was sitting there, something began to settle deep within me, a, a realization, a, a clarity, growing clarity, that, that I was sitting here at the beginning of a triathlon, having not trained a single bit. <laughs> you know, how I ended up there is kind of a funny story. My, my father loves to run a lot. He, um, he's always been somewhat of a runner. He ran 5Ks, half marathons, marathons, and things of that nature. In my teen years, I always saw that. It never really appealed to me. It didn't look like something I, I, I thought would be enjoyable. And, uh, you know, over the years, he, he ended up uh, biking and swimming, and then he entered his first triathlon. I remember thinking and hearing him train and talking about it, and he's, he's kind of an, he likes, he likes to share his joy, and so he'd just tell me all about it and, and tell me, and then he went on his first race, and I remember him kind of almost like feeling really good, you know, about, about what had, he had just experienced, and I remember sitting at the dinner table just casually saying to him, yeah, dad, you know, that's actually pretty impressive, but I could probably do that, I mean, and, uh, you know, I, I'll, honestly, I'd probably beat you, and uh, he was like, oh, really? Yeah, yeah, I mean, you know. Just, just so we're all clear here. Um, and he's like, well, why don't you go ahead and join me on one of these? And I immediately had a great line of defense. I, I, I went ahead and let him know. You know what? These races, they're on Sunday morning. I mean, I have church commitments. Dad, <laughs> couldn't argue that, you know? So I went ahead and hid behind that. I have other priorities, too. I got school. I have other things going on. And I just don't have the time to do it. And so, but, you know, and he's just like, okay, he relented. But then it never really prevented me from continuing to kind of poke at him, you know? It's like, oh, Dad, that, that's pretty cool. Yeah, I, I could take you. Um, and, and over the years, I started using this, right? And he would, why don't you join me? I can't. It's on Sundays, Dad. You know, I would if I could. And, and uh, you know, but I just kind of let it be. And then, and then it was like four years later. It was around 24. My dad, it was January, that beginning of the year. And he says, son, I think this is the year we're going to do a triathlon together. I said, really? He says, yeah, I found one. It's on Saturday. <laughs> I said, oh, he says, it's on Father's Day weekend. That would be great. That would be a great gift. I said, all right, all right, I'll go ahead. And so we signed up for it. Six months lead time. I thought, this is going to be great. This is going to be fine. And then immediately he started trying to tell me how, he started trying to coach me. Now, this is what you're going to want to do, son. There, there are transitions. It's not what you might expect. You're going to want to train. You're going to want to get used to what it looks like to do these three in tandem. And, and I thought, you know what? Dad, I mean, and he chose the shortest of the three of, of the levels of races. If, if we may not be familiar with triathlons, he chose what they call the sprint, which is half a mile swimming, 60 miles biking, and three miles running. And, and I, he said, now, this is the smallest of them all. This is, um, this is one of those things you could, and he, in fact, he says, the, the race is called a try for fun. You know, you just kind of have fun with it. <laughs> and I thought, well, I mean, if that's the case, I, he's, he's like, you should train. I said, no, I'm young. Uh, <laughs> Not necessary, you know, practice. And so I remember just, you know, him, him trying to coach me. I never really trained. But he, on the other hand, had a, had a year-long regimen. I remember seeing him. He would wake up early, go swimming, go to work, come home, bike and run, and then come have dinner. And he, he would do this daily, right, daily, daily. This is his regimen. 
And he would constantly try to entice me to train with him and practice. And I was like, no, I got other things. I have school. I have other priorities, commitments. I got to go. I'm, you know, things. I, I, just, I have a full life, Dad. I, I'm, I'm going to be okay. And so on Saturday morning, I sat there at the edge of the water. And growing anticipation, adrenaline starts to shoot through me. The foghorn goes off. We jump into the water. And I expected what maybe some of us might expect, a clear lane, a, a calm water for, for us to be able to just swim casually, you know, through it, however we want, half a mile, we can do this. But what I ended up getting was an underwater boxing match because <laughs> I started feeling fists hit my back and started feeling everything, feet kick me in the face. And I, I was swimming with everything I could, but people were grabbing my ankles and using me as, as a rope to pull themselves. And, <laughs> And I realized this is not a race. This is a, this is a match to survive. And, and seconds into it, I decided I'm going to survive. And so I started grabbing hair and wetsuits and shoulders and propelling myself. And I started expelling all my energy, getting out of there. I need to get out of here. And so I start swimming, and I'm pushing and, and just elbowing and doing everything I can to get out of there. And I get to the edge of the water. I get out of the water, and I stand up. And something pretty amazing, something I never expected would happen, happened. My energy just left me. <laughs> I was dizzy, shaking, wondering what just happened, and realizing that was just part one. <laughs> I go over, I get my bicycle, and we had to walk it up a hill to the starting point, walk it up a hill. I almost, I ran into a couple people, start yelling at me. I get on my bike, and I start riding, and as I start riding, I get a little bit of a second wind, and I think maybe this is what runner's wind feels like. You know, that was my wall, and I'm feeling pretty good, and so I put everything I have into it, and I start passing people up, and I start feeling really good about myself. And, and as I'm passing people up, I'm going, I'm going, and it's flat or downhill, and I'm downhill. I, I just loved it. You know, I felt great. And then there was this turn about halfway through, eight miles in, where the hills started to come, and my legs started to feel a little heavier. My back started constrained. I started getting really thirsty. People started passing me up. And on the calf muscle, you see the age number, right? On the right calf, as they pass you up, that number started, started to increase. <laughs> it started with low 20s, mid 20s. Ah, oh, that's fine, you know. And it was all in heats and waves, so they, they started way after us. But then it's still, people kept coming, 30s, 35, 40, 45. This is incredible, and I'm just going. And at that point, my periphery vision is just gone. I just have straight tunnel vision, and I'm thinking, I just need to make it. I just need to make it. I just need to make it, and I'm struggling, and I'm not feeling good at all. And I get to the end of the biking portion, and I just kind of throw my bike onto the side, grab my shoes at the transition point, and I start running. And I start running with everything I have. But I don't know if you've ever had one of those dreams where you're running for your life, and you're trying to run as fast as possible, but you just feel like you're not moving. <laughs> well, this wasn't a dream. Um, I was running with everything I can, but you know what the reality is? You couldn't call it running. It was just like a step above skipping, you know? It's like my feet were barely coming off the ground. My, everything was just in sheer pain. My legs were screaming, why? Why are you doing this, you know? And my lungs, I just couldn't seem three miles, what seemed like so short of a distance before I entered the race, now seemed like the longest three miles of my life. And, I remember at that point, I had started this race thinking, 
I'd like to win this. <laughs> I started at that point realizing winning is finishing. <laughs> I just don't want to quit. I just don't want to quit. I just got to keep going. And the age on the people just kept getting bigger. The numbers started getting larger. And I remember making it, you know, it got 55. And at one point, it's like 50 feet from the finish line. And my family was off to the side cheering me on. My now wife, then girlfriend, was there cheering me on. And I, I looked away in shame and <laughs> tried to hide myself. And I just kept making my way. And, and then a 60-year-old passed me by. <laughs> and it was around 20 feet prior to the finish line. It, Another person, this person was very cheerful. They, I saw hope, you know, right there, 20 feet away. And they, they saw maybe stronger hope because they, they just were smiling, you know, light on their feet, looked at me, kept going, 67 years old. <laughs> this older gentleman. And um, I crossed the finish line. I went and found a patch of grass. I just threw myself down. I fell. I turned around. I just gasping for as much oxygen as possible into my lungs that were on fire. And I'm just trying to drink as much water as possible, and I'm just sitting there. And, I'm, and my, my dad ended up knowing this 67-year-old man, and he ended up saying, my son did this race, and he's, let's go see him. And I close my eyes, and I wake up, I, I open my eyes, and I see both of them standing <laughs> over me, laughing, and... Um, <laughs> evaluating the situation, and he, I, I never met this man. I don't know who he, you know, his name, but I remember hear, hearing him say a couple things. He says, well, the, the, the distance is short enough. He's obviously young enough. He didn't train enough. Rookie mistake. He chuckled, and he walked away. I fell asleep. <laughs> I was exhausted. But that experience, though maybe we may not have had the same one, I think we could all relate with the idea, the reality, that there are certain opportunities that make their way toward us. And for whatever reason, our life is full, we get other priorities, we pack ourselves with other things, and we fail to prepare for the amazing opportunity that presents itself to us. And before you know it, we're right there at the starting line, and we start to realize we are quite overwhelmed. We end up missing out on all that it could be. And on this weekend, on this weekend where we just have several days of this year remaining and we have the promise of a new year, may we be the ones who decide to prepare because it does matter. It matters deeply and significantly how we are able to capture this next season in our lives, how we are able to squeeze everything, every benefit out of it, enjoy it. Preparation, it matters, and it, it, it mattered deeply to Jesus. Because there wasn't a moment in which Jesus didn't continually remind his disciples that there is, a, there is something we are living for, and this life in many ways is meant to prepare us. And so how we engage it, how we step into it, how we position ourselves, well, it makes all the difference. And towards the end of his, his ministry life, when he got to his moment by which he had, he had 
trained and set himself on for his entire life. The moment on the cross where he would take our debt upon himself. That moment was the moment he was getting ready for. And as he's making his way towards that moment, towards the end of his ministry, he decides he's going to sit his disciples down and he wants them to understand deeply a couple lessons. And one of those has to do with reparation and the significance of what that looks like. In fact, if you open up your handout, we're going to go ahead and step into one of these parables that he decided to share at the end of his ministry. <clears throat> it's in Matthew 25, and we'll just pick up in verse 1. We're told that then the kingdom, Jesus said, then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten bridesmaids who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. A scenario that they would, they would be very familiar with. See, in the Middle East, weddings were celebrated back then in the evening time, usually towards the end of the week. And what would happen is the groom and the bride would then tour the community, the town in which they lived in, and they would go from house to house, and each house would have a small point of celebration, and different members would join the wedding party, and they would make their way towards the ultimate point, the, the host home that would have the wedding feast, the reception. And all the bridesmaids would line the pathway for the bridegroom and the bride to make their way. And so it would be in the evening time, so they would need lamps, torches, lanterns to be able to light the way. And Jesus says, this is like the kingdom of heaven. This is, this is what it's going to be like. It's going to be like an anticipation for a celebration. This is what it's going to be like. He says, now, there, there are ten bridesmaids, right? Yes. Well, okay, five of them were foolish, he says. Five were wise. The five who were foolish didn't take enough olive oil for their lamps, but the other five were wise enough to take along extra oil oil. They were ten, there were ten bridesmaids. They, they all knew what was to come. They all got ready for the celebration. They all got dressed. They all set this time aside. They all had lamps and lanterns. They all had lights. But the wise thought there might be a need for a little bit more. We might have to wait a little longer than we anticipate. The foolish didn't take that into account. Jesus says they they thought, we're just going to go out there. We're going to light our lamps. They're going to come. No delay whatsoever. We don't need any margin. They'll, he'll make his way. We'll celebrate. It's going to be a great experience. A crucial assumption was made. And he says, now, in verse 5, when the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and fell asleep. They're all sitting in the courtyard of the home in which they're going to have the celebration. And the hour gets later and later. And so they sit down. Perhaps they recline a little bit, just waiting for the, for the groom and the bride to make his way. And as, as they're waiting, they start to get a little bit tired. And the hour gets a little later, and they end up taking a nap. And so they doze off, and they take a nap. Something we, they would understand. The disciples, yes, well, it's getting later. There's no Time is not of the essence. Capturing this moment is of the essence. Enjoying it for all that it is. That is priority. No rush. Let's just enjoy this historical moment as they make their way through the town. So they end up taking a nap. In verse 6, we're told that at midnight, they were roused by the shout, Look, the bridegroom is coming. Come out and meet him. We see the caravan. Look, he's coming his way. The bride party, the bridal party is coming. Bridesmaids, get up, get up. Make your way out outside. Line the pathway. Make sure that you're ready for him. Ready for this monumental moment in their lives. And so they, he says, th they got up. And, and 
It says all the bridesmaids got up and prepared their lamps. They, they adjusted their wicks. They made sure their, the torch was properly lit. They lined the pathway. And as they're lining the pathway, something happens. The five who had not prepared, who had left, by the way, all ten of them left their lights burning the entire time. Five of them who had not had extra oil look at their lamps and they realize they're running out. They're thinning out. Jesus says in verse 8 that the five foolish ones asked the others. They looked to the ones who had a little bit extra, and they went over to them and said, please, can you give us some of your oil because our lamps are going out? And you know how improper that would be. You know how improper it would be for us not to have a light to celebrate the groom and the bride. This is a moment in their lives that will be forever changed. So help us celebrate, will you? Will you help us? Can Can we borrow some of your oil? You have a little extra. Can you share it? Jesus says in verse 9 that the others replied, we don't have enough. We don't have enough for all of us. Why don't you go to the shop and buy some for yourselves? Which some people have said, well, that's a rather selfish response. But the fact of the matter is what they were saying is something that was just fact. It's just true. See, what they had to do is they had to turn off their light. They had to unscrew the bottom of the flask in which the oil was. Then they would have to pour the oil into the other five, diminishing their own supply, then turn on back the wick and risk the chance of all of them thinning out to such a level that none of them would have a light. And so the five wise bridesmaids, they say, you know what? We don't have enough for all of us. Instead of risking having no light, the five of us will stay here. We'll have our light. We'll be able to celebrate them. We'll light their way. Why don't you go to the shop owner who most likely knows what's going on? He'll sell you some oil. You'll make your way back here. We'll be able to celebrate together. Do it quickly. Do it now. And so they did. They did. They went. They heeded their advice. And we're told in verse 10 that while Jesus says, while they were gone to buy oil, while they're making their way to come back to the celebration, the bridegroom came. And we could sense the excitement, the joy. He came with his wife, celebrating, proud, happy. And as they're making their way, those who were ready went in to the marriage feast with him. They went indoors, and they celebrated, and the music was playing, and everyone was excited and happy for them, and everyone was experiencing this moment that was just so great for the two of them. And the entire community descended on this house. And the door was closed behind them and locked. Later, we're not told how much later, when the five other bridesmaids returned, they stood outside and they most likely heard the music playing. They most likely heard the cheering and the joy and the laughing and the dancing. They most likely saw the lights inside the house. They most likely realized, oh, he came. Isn't this exciting? This is amazing. This is great. And they're making their way towards, and they come to the door, and they try to open it, but they realize it's locked. Oh, that's a little odd. Well, okay. So then they start knocking on the door, and they start yelling out, and they start calling, Lord, Lord, open the door for us. We want to celebrate with you, too. We want to enjoy this. We want to acknowledge and honor you too. We're here. We're back. We had to go get some oil, but open the door. Let us in. Jesus says, but something happened. See, the bridegroom, he probably made his way to the front, looked through one of the windows, lattices, and saw and recognized something. This is strange. Five bridesmaids. They weren't 
with the others when I arrived. I'm not sure if I altogether recognize them. How do I know they're not imposters crashing our party? And after investigating and looking, Jesus says in verse 12 that he called back, Believe me, I don't know you. Who are you? I don't know you. And he just lets us say, story ends. Which would most likely, this situation, this scenario would most likely trigger different memories within the disciples' minds in which they were familiar with. A friend of a friend, perhaps, missed a party, missed an engagement. And the door was shut, and they missed out on the celebration, on the feast. They would probably be triggered at the different moments in their lives where they knew something was coming and they, they weren't able to celebrate with it. And on the backdrop of this story, he says, now, almost leaning in, this is why I'm sharing this story to you. This is why it's like the kingdom of heaven. Verse 13. You. You too must keep watch. You must watch. Because you do not know the day or hour of my return. See, I'm going away right now. But you need to live life alert. Because you don't know when I'm returning. And you want to make sure you don't miss out on the celebration, on that historic moment when I do. No explanation. He lets it settle. He just lets it settle. All of the implications, Jesus just lets them sink. Everything that he was addressing in the parable, he lets it simmer. Preparation. Preparation matters. It matters. It matters. And as we consider, as we consider this moment in our lives, where we are several days from turning the corner into something completely new, a brand new year. I was thinking that this parable, although it is meant to encourage us to always live with an eye towards the fact that Jesus promised he will return, and we don't want to be caught unprepared. There are some things we can consider in light of the new year as well. And so I'd like us to shift gears just a tad and have certain thoughts under the idea of, you know what, this parable reminds us of a couple things for the new year. Firstly, it reminds us that awareness, Jesus reminds us and highlights awareness and preparedness are two different things, aren't they? Awareness and preparedness are two completely different things. All ten bridesmaids were completely aware of the celebration that was about to take place. The ten bridesmaids were aware that the groom and the bride were coming. They were all aware. Only five were prepared. I was aware of the race six months in advance. Well, the crucial mistake is I, I never prepared. And that changed the entire experience. Awareness and preparedness, they're, they're two different worlds, aren't they? The chasm is much larger than we might think. Yeah, I th I guess what I'm saying is, is in these several days leading up, in which maybe we have a little bit more time allotted to us that gives us a little bit more space to think and pray, it might be beneficial for us to set some time aside 
a couple hours, a good chunk of time to prayerfully reflect. Lord, how do you want me to prepare to engage in this next season of my life, to be able to step into it? How do you want me to, what one or two adjustments do you want me to make in my life? Maybe we jot some thoughts down. Lord, how do you want to direct my path right now? What is it that you want me to do in this coming month? Well, how do you want me to enter into this new year? And perhaps we, we start to open ourselves up to God's direction as we consider what it would look like for us to take complete advantage of this new season that is right around the corner. How beneficial that would be to us. What would that look like? It means giving God access, giving him ability to speak to us, which Ultimately, is what Jesus, you know, secondly, he said, listen, he reminds us that wisdom, wisdom looks like building spiritual depth. What was the difference? He says, listen, five bridesmaids, they had a little bit extra oil so that their light could continue to burn for the arrival of the groom and the bride. And throughout the entirety of the scriptures, oil is extremely symbolic of God's spirit. And we, we may have an idea of what's to come in the new year. We may have a glimpse of different things, transitions that are up ahead. But could we consider the fact that maybe what is to come, what, what will be required of us, is a level of depth in God that we are supposed to be preparing for right now. Perhaps God may ask us to make sure that we have enough oil in our flask to be able to wait on him to be able to endure, to be able to remain? What would that look like for us to invest energy, to cultivate just a little bit more depth with God? And I was just thinking about this. We, this. we could approach this different ways. Some of us may consider maybe giving God access to different areas of our lives. We might consider saying, you know what, Lord? I want to involve you in how I manage and budget my time. And we might want to invite him to speak to us. How his priorities might dictate how we arrange our time. Or perhaps it's our resource and our gifts and our skills. Perhaps it's our finances. Help me explore, Lord, what it looks like to be driven by your value system. Or maybe it's relational. Maybe it's, this is the year in which God may be asking us to increase the depth of our ability to grow relationally. And maybe, maybe this next month is really a month of us coming ready to be equipped of what it looks like to put love into action, what it looks like to love God and to love others so that wholeness would increase in our lives. Maybe this is that year. Maybe this is the year we grow just a little bit deeper with God. We never know what kind of difference it would make. So a friend of mine decided, you know what, I'm going to read differently. I enjoy reading. It's, I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to read a book or two or three this year. Speak to me about what it looks like to follow Jesus. Make that a priority. Just a little bit deeper, a little bit more oil, a little bit more of God's presence in what we do. We never know what kind of difference it would make. But what we know is this, that Jesus, in addition to speaking to them about the wisdom of growing spiritually, he told them that, that now... Now is the time to prepare and be alert. And now is the time to prepare and be alert. See, every opportunity has a moment where that door is closed and the lock is bolted. And so there is no delaying. 
There is no putting it off. I, this, this is the time that we are supposed to step into this season of our lives. Whatever was, was. May we leave it behind us. We will make adjustments. May we allow God to fuel us and to give us a new breath of life and hope and the ability to sit on the edge of our seat and take complete advantage of this time we have to, for us. May this be the moment we are alert and prepared at God's disposal. How do you want me to prepare? How do you want me to put legs to my good intentions, God? Maybe it means signing up. I'm going to sign up to a, a growth period in my life with God. I'm going to look at what next steps look like here in our church community. I'm going to sign up for a small group. I'm going to go into a Bible study. Or maybe, you know what, I'm going to start engaging. I'm going to stop. I'm going to move from attending to serving. I'm going to volunteer my, my resource, my gifts, my time, my energy. And I'm going to give. 2014 is the year I give. I give. I, as we do this, I'm praying that God would fuel us. It would increase our oil in such a way that when the opportunity of what he longs to do in our lives, that moment where he longs to celebrate with us his work in our lives, we're ready. We're waiting. We're ready and anticipating. And we're able to step into it. And as we do, can we hear this? as we put legs behind what we long for this year to become with God, it may become the best year yet. This year may actually become the best year because we, we lived prepared, alert, ready. This may be that year. And who knows what God may want to do? Who knows what new life he may want to bring about? What, what an amazing possibility. What an amazing possibility we have before us. May that be the case. May we step into it. May we step into it fully prepared. In a moment, we're going we're gonna to be having our time of giving. And, and we're going to go ahead and have the band come up and close with a song that is meant to help us settle into what God maybe want to press into. If you read it, it's called Keep Me Near. It's, in, it's the third stanza. There's this stanza that I, 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 I'm hoping becomes our prayer. It says, For you are everything that is beautiful, and you are all that I long to see in me. You are everything that is beautiful. And, and this just, may this be our prayer. Breathe your desires in me. Breathe your desires in me, God. May he breathe his desires in us as we prayerfully reflect how to prepare for the promise of a new year. Let's pray. God, I thank you. I thank you, Lord, that your, your presence is much like a celebration. That your your presence in our lives is a joyful celebration of your activity, of what you want to do in our lives. And I ask, God, that you would help us as we consider, as we take full advantage of the remaining days of this year, and as it comes to an end, that you would speak to us, that you would breathe your spirit deep into our soul, that your desires 
would become our source of strength and motivation. And that you would do something truly beautiful. That you would do something beautiful in the coming year, God. We pray for your blessing and we ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.